Hey everyone, good day and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. It is I, your host, Amir Fogel, and today we're getting back to our roots here at The Imposter, and we're going to be doing another one of those episodes where we look at science, science in the headlines. Shapop, wow, alright. Now, I know you've all probably gotten pretty used to having the content of Imposter episodes being interviews with might I say, very fascinating individuals. But sometimes, my good friends, it's time to shake things up a bit, you know? Just shake it up, shake it a shake. Plus, this is good practice time for me to learn to share the mic with myself. And let me say, it is harder than you think, trust me. All right, but enough about that, let's start this show. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. Now, as I said in the intro, today's episode is Science in the Headlines. And for those of you that are new to The Imposter, this type of episode is one in which I choose the top five important and interesting news articles developing in the many fields of the sciences in the last week or so. All right, now, before we begin, just a quick side note. I was doing the research for this episode and came across an article on the IFL Science page about a webcomic called XKCD by Randall Monroe. And I've actually, I've read XKCD before. I really like it. Now, Mr. Monroe recently released a comic infograph about climate change denial, which was specifically addressing the talking point, the climate on Earth has changed before. Now, I have to say, it pleasantly, non-condescendingly, and fairly accurately draws the entire timeline from 20,000 BC to present day in what I and many others seem to think is a slamming good piece of science communication and engagement. So, shout out to you, Mr. Randall Monroe. He is the creator of the webcomic XKCD, and you should definitely check it out at xkcd.com. All right, last little follow-up bit to that last little side bit, is that if you want to watch an interesting documentary about climate change and climate change denial and the politics and this business and all whatnot, there's a very interesting 2014 film called Merchants of Doubt, which I thought was was done pretty well. I liked it. So anyway, all right, let's get into it now with article number one. Look at the environment page for any major science website, and most likely you will find the most popular topic to write about is climate change and anthropogenic, meaning human-induced, degradation of the environment and its inhabitants. 
Now, this is the case for good reason, as around the world, the effects of climate change will, for better or worse, permeate into the multitude of layers that make up functioning and successful ecosystems. For this reason, I like to take any opportunity to include a piece about climate change into the public sphere. So, article number one is a piece written by Erica Bolstad, and I found it in Scientific, uh, Scientific American, but it was originally published on the website ClimateWire. The article is called, Military Leaders Warn That Climate Poses Security Threats. I know what you're thinking. The title doesn't leave much to interpretation, but I promise you the content of the piece dives a bit deeper and really has a very important message. So Bolstad writes about how military leaders from both major political parties in the U.S. are petitioning whoever wins the future administration to take climate change seriously. The military leaders cite possible scenarios based on the published climate science so far. For example, they say that the chance of conflicts both national and international erupting, state governments failing to maintain order, immigration and instability are all going to increase in various parts around the world. And that's aside from sea level rise and ocean acidification and all the other fun stuff. So retired Navy Rear Admiral David Titley was quoted in the article saying, I hope that both policymakers and those in the public who care about this issue will see that this is really not a partisan issue. This is really an apolitical issue. It's one of security. The military leaders are really trying to stress from a purely strategic point of view that addressing climate change with comprehensive action plans for high impact areas, managing emissions of CO2 and methane and other excessive polluters, and taking serious and dramatic steps back towards redirecting our climate predictions to the general baseline of the last few thousand years. So keeping the politics out of such a crucial issue is much easier said than done. And frankly, in the States, you know, we, we've seen time and time again how issues that impact the lives of many, many thousands of people are just turned into political war zones. And it's really a shame that this has been lumped into the same category. Now, take, for instance, you know, the, the article actually cites this, that the House Republicans recently passed defense appropriations and authorization bills that essentially prohibit the Defense Department from allocating money to combat climate change. I mean, just think about how ridiculous that is for a second. It's just, it's, it's really shooting ourselves in the foot, to be quite frank. But I'll tell you what. I found that this interview with Louis Theroux and a South African animal breeder really encapsulates and articulates how I feel about all of this. It's a fact because we chop down everything and we eat everything. All right, so let's just hope that that clip is covered under fair use and uh, I'll just say all rights for the BBC. Okay, so the other thing that's interesting about this article is that some of these military leaders are already ahead of the game. So I'm going to read you a little excerpt from the article, and I quote, Many military leaders say that considering climate change and renewable energy has made their branches more resilient fighting forces and bureaucracies, starting with reducing emissions and creating a nimble fighting culture that is less dependent on fossil fuels. By reducing their carbon footprint, they became a combatant in the war on rising global temperatures, military leaders say. 
It's about reducing costs and improving operational readiness. And when you diversify and become more efficient with your energy and your fuel sources, you get multiple benefits, both in performance and in cost, said Sherry Goodman, who was the former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. So that's actually pretty much the gist of the article that en encapsulates most of it. But I will say that the idea of climate change affecting governments, economies, and social structures, it's not new. What these military leaders are raising is not new. The important and significant aspect of this piece is the actual group making the claim, is these military leaders. I mean, the fact that they're stepping up and saying, wake up, fools, is awesome. The added bonus of having this come from a group of bipartisan military leaders is even better. It really just breaks down those those barriers of political parties. And it really lives up to the message that these seasoned armed service individuals are trying to get across, which is nature has no political affiliation. Nature doesn't give two hoots what party you subscribe to. Nature's going to find you, and nature's going to beat you up. Just kidding, but actually, you know, uh, possibly. So keep that in mind. All right, so let's move on to article number two. I have to give a bit of a warning, actually. As most of you probably know, my background is in marine biology, and though here at The Imposter I try to be fair and equal in the representation of all fields of science, I'm also only human, and marine feels home to me, so article number two is marine-themed. There you go. So this piece is one I found in The Guardian entitled Humanity Driving Unprecedented Extinction, written by Adam Vaughn. Now essentially Vaughn begins by bringing us up to speed that there have been five previous mass extinction events, all of which did not seem to produce a pattern indicating which marine species were lost to extinction. However, now, as we enter the sixth mass extinction event, things have changed a bit. It appears that we can actually pinpoint to a certain cause for the decline and extinction of many species. I'll give you one guess. If you guessed us, you are correct. And I will give the caveat that there are both direct and indirect impacts from human intervention, should we say. Now, this is specifically in the case of marine life, and the worry comes from fisheries that target species by size. And what do I mean by that? Well, a long time ago, when I was a bit younger, I was told that bigger is better, and then some years later I was told that size doesn't matter, and then after years of living carefree, it turns out that size really does matter. And if you think I'm talking about wiener sizes, then you probably should order that Swedish penis and larger pump from Austin Powers, because clearly something is on your mind. But let me assist and redirect your thoughts off of the long dong silvers and back to marine life. So, we've talked about the importance of size and predation on this podcast before. And it appears that now the larger marine organisms, such as my dear large sharks, uh, cetaceans like whales or, or dolphins, or bluefin tuna, which can get massive, are experiencing relative population declines that are, quite frankly, unprecedented. Hence the title of the article. Uh, 
Now, we have never outfished species with such efficiency and rapid timing as we have today, and frankly, that's due to the technology that we have. We just have better access. And the article goes on to talk about a study that was recently published in the journal Science called Ecological Selectivity of the Emerging Mass Extinction in the Oceans. And the authors of that study are Payne, Bush, Heim, Nope, and Macaulay. Now, the study's authors suggest that humans tend to kill off the largest predators in every place we go, which I happen to agree with. I mean, what's the top predator in England? Foxes? Seriously? Methinks there used to be some wolves and large cats and bears there. Just saying, I don't think it was always foxes. It's not like Iceland, which apparently that is the way it was. Uh, anyway, they go on to explain that the ocean has been insulated from this exploitative pattern because humans haven't had the access and technology to fish further out and deeper in the oceans until now, as previously mentioned. Now, the article ends on what is supposed to be a positive note, citing the recent creation of the largest marine protected area. And I say it's supposed to be a positive note because of two things, which link actually pretty well. The first is that the author of this article, Adam Vaughn, follows this piece up the next day with another article called UK to ban fishing from a million square kilometers of the ocean, which I'm sure you can all guess what that article is about. And this leads me to my second point, which is that all of these announcements of marine protected areas or MPAs are fantastic, really. I mean, they're really, really great. Don't get me wrong. However, they are not the be-all and end-all. Setting up the MPA is only the second step in effective conservation. Enforcement and reputation of enforcement are key in continuing conservation efforts that will be successful. The larger the protected area, the more expensive it is to monitor that space. Now, I've heard a lot of talk and celebration of MPAs with very little mention of how enforcement is going to take place. I mean, this happened recently with the Obama's administration's uh, recent announcement of the Pacific MPA, which is the largest one in the world. That's going to be insane to try and protect and enforce keeping everybody out. Now, the second article that Adam Vaughn wrote, which was the one about the UK protecting, or, or sorry, banning fishing from a million square kilometers, has its own ramifications because fishermen are also people. They also have families to take care of and themselves to take care of. And so you're, you're going to displace a lot of jobs as well. And you need to think about what the repercussions for those people will be. But even further than that, the article has one line that's fairly ambiguous about enforcement. And I'll read it right here. It says, the United Kingdom has solidified its position as a leader in ocean conservation, said Joshua S. Reichert of the Pew Charitable Trust, which is working with the UK on technology to monitor the Pitcairn area. The technology to monitor the Pitcairn area. That is pretty much it. That's their monitoring. That's their hint towards monitoring. Whether this ambiguity is deliberate or not is another story. But, I mean, come on. How are they going to do all this? And... Again, this isn't even getting into the politics of enforcement either. Then you have to deal with which agency is in charge of what and how to enforce and what funds can they allocate for it. I mean, are they going to do it by boat or drones or motion sensors or all of them or who knows? I mean, 
honestly, I could go on about this for hours, as you can probably tell. I will leave it in your very capable hands to do some of your own research on the topic because it's very important. Uh, it's important to keep up to date on marine news and conservation and you gotta remember that it's directly linked with our own survival on this planet. So, or as Sylvia Earle puts it, no blue, no green. Alright, let's move on to article number three. So, I chose this article actually because it's a really good example, at least in my opinion, of engagement between both scientists and the public for the sheer purpose of curiosity, which I think you have to applaud. I mean, that's, that's great. Now, the article was also from Scientific American, and it's called 20 Big Questions About the Future of Humanity by Kyle Hilton. And it's literally 20 questions that are posed to scientists of different backgrounds about the future. So the questions range from, does humanity have a future beyond Earth? To, will sex become obsolescent? And even, can we feed our planet without destroying it? Questions from all across the spectrum are asked and answered by these different academics, and let me tell you now, the answers are very intriguing. Now, I'm going to post a link to it, as well as all the other articles on the blog site, which you can find at theimposterpodcast.wordpress.com forward slash. And it's definitely worth checking out, because I am not going to tell you any of the answers to these very fascinating questions. Number four is a short little article written by David Freeman about a casual debate that recently occurred between top researchers in theoretical physics, philosophy, and cosmology. The debate, which was actually more like a conversation among brilliant researchers, was an event held by the American Museum of Natural History and hosted by science superstar Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, the question that was being discussed is one that has become increasingly popular over the last few years, which was, are we all currently living in a simulation? Is this the Matrix? Is life the universe? Everything we have come to deem reality actually a very complex and intricate simulation? Well, the experts seem to have gone back and forth throughout the years, but this article pushes the conversation a bit further. In this little blurb published in the Huffington Post, there is a link embedded to the actual talk on YouTube, which I highly recommend if you've got an hour or two tonight or this weekend. It's, I mean, when are you going to hear people this smart talk for this long about something this bizarre, frankly? It's really, it's, it is a rare opportunity to be able to sit and listen to some of the most amazing minds discuss a truly mind-bending idea that I just say it really makes you think and question pretty much everything. So it's like tripping on shrooms without the shrooms. And for all of you snobby people out there being like, I don't trip on shrooms because I like acid. Or I don't do that stuff. I will say to this, this will has nothing to do with that. This is just very trippy. Check it out. I don't know why I'm rambling now. Let's... Are we... Okay. And now, the last article of today which I will say is one that is both a slight cause for concern and also a real eye-opener. Numero cinco, Mispal Hamish. Number five is an article, again, from Scientific American. God, they're so popular today. 
And the title, I have to say, really gets the ball rolling. It's called, What Do the Presidential Candidates Know About Science? Yeah, that's right. We're going there. So this piece of fine journalism was written by Christine Gorman, and it is the article I've been waiting to read for months now, perhaps even years. For those of you not aware, Clinton, Trump, Stein, and Johnson were all asked 20 questions regarding the top science, engineering, technology, health, and environmental issues of the future. This was an effort spearheaded by ScienceDebate.org, so good on all of you for doing that. And, uh, yeah, all right, anyway, so this is a very fascinating response from all three presidential candidates. Uh, Mr. Gary Johnson has not responded yet. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, who knows? And I will just say that before we get into the actual answers to the questions, I want to read a little quote from the article that, that really resonated with me. So, here we go. Sometimes politicians think science issues are limited to simply things like the budget for NASA or NIH, and they fail to realize that our president's attitude toward and decisions about science and research affect the public well-being, from the growth of our economy to education to public health. Rush Holt, CEO of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences and executive publisher of The Science Family of Journals said in a statement accompanying the question's release. Voters should have a chance to know where the presidential candidates stand. We want journalists and voters to ask these questions insistently of the candidates and their campaign staff. End quote. Yes, we do. You go, Rush Holt. That is so on point. All right, so now I'm going to choose just two of the questions out of the 20 and give a quick rundown. So the first one is on climate change. The question is, the Earth's climate is changing and political discussion has become divided over both the science and the best response. What are your views on climate change and how would your administration act on those views? So Clinton gave a very thorough answer complete with bullet points and promises of renewable energy expansions. Trump's response opened with the line, there is still much that needs to be investigated in the field of and then he put quotation marks, climate change. Trump then goes on to briefly point out problems that will be directly intensified by climate change, such as access to clean water, famine, and disease, while heavily implying there is no connection. If only he wore that ironic chastity belt I got him for Christmas that one year. It shocks you whenever, you know, you approach a ironic situation to this caliber, but... I guess some people don't open their presents. You know what I'm saying? Just rude. All right, now as mentioned before, our libertarian candidate has yet to respond to these questions, so we're going to pass over him and go to our Green Party candidate, Dr. Stein, who gave the longest answer and also, like Hillary, included bullet points. And she took uh, both a historical and a direct action plan for climate change. So. I gotta say, this one goes to Dr. Stein, with Hillary at a close second. Trump's not even on the radar, and, you know, even even though Gary Johnson didn't submit an answer, I almost safely assume it would be better than Trump's, so. Additionally, 
I'll say that a similar result was also noticed for the question on biodiversity, which I have to say is impressive that they even asked about. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, all right. Let's move on to the second and final question that I'm going to analyze, which is about education. So the question is, American students have fallen in many international rankings of science and math performance, and the public in general is being faced with an expanding array of major policy challenges that are heavily influenced by complex science. How would your administration work to ensure all students including women and minorities, are prepared to address 21st century challenges and further, that the public has an adequate level of STEM literacy in an age dominated by complex science and technology. So Clinton answered this with a strong support for the Obama administration's Computer Science for All initiative. And not that surprising. She also followed that up with an action call to attract and encompass more minority youths into the sciences, which is a fairly straightforward way to address the question, I suppose. And her primary concerns seem to be for a better workforce and not education for education's sake, which I suppose actually there's nothing wrong with having that motivation. I personally would have different motivations, but I'm not running for president, so what do I know? Now, Mr. Trump here, actually, does anybody want to guess what Trump said? Uh, I can tell you there's no mention of Trump University, just saying. No, he actually, he said something that is shocking because I agreed with it, and that's really makes me feel queasy inside, though I have to say it's probably not for the same reasons as why he said it. Trump called for a restructuring of the current education system and giving more authority to state and local governments and school boards. And I have to say this issue is certainly up for much debate, as it has been for a while. I was really, again, a little surprised by the actual logic in his answer. So, just goes to show you, you can have a million pounds of bullshit with one tiny, 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 tiny little bit of non-bullshit. Alright, finally, Dr. Stein concisely put her entire answer into bullet points, touching on restoring arts and sciences to schools, engaging minority use, and tuition-free school from pre-K to university, as well as a few other ideas. And all in all, you know, all these answers, you know, given the baseline of campaigning politicians, they all seem to answer these questions mostly you know, fairly well, uh, left it fairly unscathed. Now, that is not the case for all the questions asked, though, so I definitely would check out this article, which is also linked on the blog, because, frankly, you should really know where your candidate stands on such important issues regarding the sciences, like for realsies. Yeah, so pretty, pretty, pretty important. Definitely check that article out. Also, just interesting to see how they all think and relate to the sciences, but anyway. All right, everyone, that is it for our show today. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Amir. Don't forget to like and share us on Facebook, SoundCloud. You can follow me on Twitter. My handle is anotherfogel, that's F-O-G-E-L. And other than that, you can find us on the iTunes Music Store, keyword the imposter podcast 
you can subscribe to The Imposter on the iTunes Music Store, and that way you will get all the updates of new episodes directly downloaded to your iTunes account. So there you go. Other than that, have a fantastic weekend, everyone. We will see you in two weeks. And get ready, because it's going to be our back-to-school episode. We've got a great guest coming on. I don't want to give it away, but you're going to have your mind blown. Trust me. So stay tuned and up-to-date with The Imposter. And we will see you later, everyone. Have a lovely day.